Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. In today's episode, I spoke with Karen Ruffle, author of Gender, Sainthood, and Everyday Practice in South Asian Shiism, from University of North Carolina Press in 2011. What does a wedding in Karbala in the year 680 have to do with South Asian Muslims today? As it turns out, this event informed contemporary ideas of personal piety and social understandings of gender roles. The battlefield wedding of Qasim and Fatima Kubra on the 7th of Muharram is com- commemorated annually by Hyderabadi Shia Muslims. In Gender, Sainthood, and Everyday Practice in South Asian Shiism, Karen Ruffle explores the relationship between devotional literature and ritual practice in the formulation of social consciousness and embodied ethics. She accomplishes this task through great ethnographic detail and deep investigation into a rich literary tradition of devotional hagiographical text. Ruffle argues that hagiography, when enacted through contemporary ritual performances, establishes typologies of Shia sainthood. Altogether, these localized models of ethics and gender normativity reflect the realities of the religiously plural geographies Hyderabadi Shia Muslims inhabit. In our conversation, we discuss annual morning assemblies, Husseini ethics, gender roles, martyrdom and kinship, the relationship between texts and performance, vernacular and cosmopolitan Islams, sectarian affiliation, and the homogenization of Shiism. Without further ado, here's our interview. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Karen Ruffle about her new book, Gender, Sainthood, and Everyday Practice in South Asian Shiism. Welcome, Karen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for agreeing to do this and uh, giving me a copy of your wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. Before we get into some of the themes you, you explore in the book, um, maybe you could just kind of give us some of your background, where where you got interested in, in religion, in South Asia, in Islamic studies in particular, and uh, maybe some people that have kind of been reflective on, on your approach to Islamic studies. Sure, I'll be happy to talk about that. But first, I'd like to thank you for asking me to talk about the book today. I have a very long history sort of with Islam that actually goes back to childhood. I was one of these very kind of geeky children that was interested in the world. Uh, I grew up in Middlebury, Vermont, uh, which is the home to Middlebury College, uh, where the, each summer uh, they're, they're very famous for their summer language institutes. And so I grew up with Arabic being taught in, in my hometown and being a small college town also affected the, the kind of elementary school that we had, which was, which was very progressive and had uh, special learning programs for, for students. And I was able to spend a fair amount of time each week doing my own research and following questions that I had. And in sixth grade, for example, I did a project on Israel. And at that point, I was not very evolved uh, politically. And I only had one sentence about the Palestinians in that in that project. But it was my first experience doing field work. I actually interviewed uh, one of the 
uh, Jordanian families in Middlebury, and I interviewed some Jewish families, and and so that was at about the age of eleven or twelve, my first fieldwork experience, and I really enjoyed it. And I also, by the time I was a freshman in high school, I was in world history class and we had to do projects and I decided I'd do my project on Islam. And I wrote, I got very excited instead of writing like a two or three page paper, I wrote a 15 page paper. And I remember I said, yeah, (laughs) it started early. Uh, I I remember I said to my mother as I was doing this research, wow, I think I know what I want to do. And, and so I continued studying on my own. And when I applied to colleges, I knew I wanted to keep working on Islam, but how I was going to do that, I wasn't quite certain, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I ended up kind of taking the lazy way out, and I went to Middlebury College. And there I worked with Tazim Kassam, who has been a really profound influence in in my life. And uh, she really, in many ways, shaped the direction that I took in, in my study of Islam. I, I took every course that she offered, and, and it was really... I think very refreshing for me, the courses that she offered were not entirely Arab world focused. Uh, I was able to do coursework on Shiism at the undergraduate level and then at advanced level and was able to do a lot of research on my own. And the South Asia dimension didn't really come in until my junior year of college. I was at the American University in Washington, D.C., and I was doing a semester program while I was working for uh, in the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, or ADC. I was working as a media intern, and I wanted to keep doing that, but I needed to stay in school. And, and so I did this international relations program, and... I remember on one of the days we always had guests, we either went on field trips every week or we had guest lectures and, and we had uh, a sick woman come in and speak and she was a convert to sickism. And for some reason that, that uh, class had a real impact on me. And I started thinking, well, what about Shiism in South Asia instead of just Shiism in Iran, which is where my original interest was. And, when I returned to Middlebury to finish my last year and a half, I, I was I was focused. I, I started doing a lot more coursework on South Asia in addition to Islamic studies and decided that I wanted to go to graduate school and get a PhD in South Asian Islam. And, and so I started working toward that goal. And I, after I graduated, I did a summer studying Telugu in at uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and I knew I wanted to work in Hyderabad. I don't know why, but I wanted to work in Hyderabad and in South Central India, which is the field site uh, for my my book, and is also the site of ongoing research that I'll tell you about in a little while. I ended up going to India later after I graduated a year, about a year after I graduated and I worked a whole bunch of odd jobs. And then I went to Yemen and I applied to graduate school after taking those two years off, which was really very helpful. And 
And then I enrolled at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where I worked with uh, Carl Ernst. And it was an interesting time for Islamic studies because it was, I started in the fall of 1998 and so it was a few years before September 11th, and and I was one of the very few students at UNC doing Islamic studies at that time, and, and it really took off uh, in the years after September 11th, but there were a number of students at Duke University who, had, who were you know, much further along than I was, and, and so that was... Definitely an interesting time for me, and I, I did. A, I was able to do a lot of work on my own and, and really pursue my interests uh, in sort of a really very independent way. And uh, and then I started going to India and Pakistan most almost every year to study Urdu, uh, to do research, to do field work. And then I spent about a little over two years in the field doing in Iran, Syria, and mostly in Hyderabad from between 2004 and 2006 doing, uh, doing my field research that uh, makes up this book. And as far as influences, as I mentioned, Tazim Qasam has been a, a very profound influence. Uh, and then two professors that I had in grad school have also uh, had a, a deep influence on, on my work. Carl Ernst, obviously, I, I did a lot of coursework with him. He very patiently did reading courses in Persian and in Arabic with me. And, and I learned a lot about the importance of, of the text and how to really to put texts and textual traditions in relationship with lived practice. And then Tony Stewart, who's now at Vanderbilt University, was extremely helpful for me in terms of theorizing, figuring out how do I interpret all of this material. And and so really these three figures have had have had a lasting impact on on my work. Yeah, you can definitely see how these interests are all tied together in, in, in this book. Um, maybe you could explain a little bit how how this particular topic that you explore mm. came about. Okay, yes. Uh, this is also another sort of long story in the sense that I, I kept having experiences that happened over and over and over again, ultimately drawing me to the case study that I use in in the book, this marriage that uh, Hyderabad Shia in particular believe happened at the Battle of Karbala between uh, Imam Hussein's daughter Fatima Kubra and her cousin Qasim. In 2002, I spent a summer in Lucknow doing field research and I did some interviews with Urdu scholars uh, who are working on Marcia, a genre of Shi'i devotional literature that's uh, very similar. I, I think it has epic qualities to it. Uh, it's, it's long. It tends to be lengthy as far as poetry goes. It's, it's narrative. Uh, characters are set up. Heroes and heroines are, are established in certain ways. And then I interviewed this one particular scholar. And for some reason, I decided to ask questions about this one particular celebration or event on the 7th of Muharram. And he said, well, 
this event, we don't observe this anymore in Lucknow. It's it's superstition. It emphasizes practices that are not truly Islamic. All of these wedding rituals are superstition. Uh, we don't do that. Instead, we observe the the sacrifice of Fiza, the Abyssinian slave uh, that was... Uh, that worked for Fatima, and then after Fatima died, the Prophet Muhammad's daughter Fatima, after she died, uh, she remained in the in the employ of the Ahle Bayt and was at the Battle of Karbala, according to tradition. So he really emphasized that, and like, that's more progressive. And I thought, okay, well, that's an interesting response. And I kind of just sat on that for a while. I didn't think too much about it, but then when I was doing a... Uh, a reading course in Persian with Carl. I'd selected to work on Kashafi's Rosatoshahada, the Garden of the Martyrs, and I chose that narrative to analyze. And it captured my imagination. I just thought there was there was a lot there that the the emotions, the the feelings, uh, the experience, and and the open endedness of the narrative at the end after Qasim is martyred, and the, the chapter ends with Fatima Kubra reciting a, a poem, as happens at emotionally intense moments in in this book, and it got me thinking. Maybe I should use this as as the focus and. And so I went to Iran in 2004 and started interviewing mullahs about and other research scholars about this this text. And they all said, it's garbage. It's terrible. Why am I working on this? And I was kind of devastated. I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do? And, and so I started thinking about the text and the kinds of critiques that were leveled. And I, and I talk about this in, uh, in the book. But I, I thought, well... This is being treated as history, and it's not history. And it does have meaning for people. These narratives do have meaning. And when I got to Hyderabad, my my hunches were were validated when I saw just how important the seventh of Muharram is. I mean, it really sort of marks the the, the emotion. Aside from the tenth of Muharram, it's it's you know it's the start of these four really intense days during during Muharram, and and the the wedding resonates in people's everyday lives, and and so it just was several years of these experiences that kind of came together, came together, came together. And I realized that obviously there was something important there and it seemed like a good way to ask some of the, by focusing on this, this wedding and then all of the rituals and, and devotional literature that's developed on this topic that maybe I should use this rather than looking at a whole range of Muharram events or activities, but to to take one event and then really do a close and in-depth analysis of that to pull out an understanding of, well, how are things like gender roles taught? How do people relate to these figures as saints? And, and as saints, what kind of saints are they? And and so I was really able to kind of ask a whole range of questions. How do these figures function in the devotional literature? Why is this event so contentious? 
and and it's been the subject of of debate. You know, is it permissible to observe the Mendi Kimechlis, the the Henna Morning Assembly? I mean, there have been debates about this since the mid nineteenth century. Well, you do a great job, and uh, I, I think this relationship between text and practice is really important. I want to I want to kind of ask you about that. Um, because this this makes up a, a, a lot of what you're exploring here. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you explain the, kind of the nature of hagiographical literature in South Asia and and maybe how this might differ from from hagiographical literature in other places or sure. does it? Well, yeah. Okay. So why don't I start with the first part of the question and, and okay. <laughs> the second part of the question in. I think when the first thing that needs to be done is just to specify, I'm talking about Shi'i hagiographical literature. Uh, I think Sufi hagiographies function differently. And in the Sunni, you know, and then in the larger Sunni tradition, I would say they also operate differently. But this, because this literature focuses on a set number of people the 12 imams and other members of the Prophet Muhammad's household who uh, obtained their their descent through his daughter Fatima Zahra and her husband and Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law Ali. Then I use the term Ahlebayt, the people of the household, as uh, as a shorthand for, for these figures, these people who have this blood descent. I see the hagiographical literature that focuses on the lives and the sacrifices of these figures as hagiographical. It, it conforms to a number of qualities of hagiogra- uh, hagiography. It extols the religious virtues of these figures. It sets them up as moral exemplars. It establishes their difference from regular people, yet I also argue, at least for the Ahle Bayt, that these figures, while being exceptional, um, they're, they're, we can take on their qualities through practice, through hearing these stories, through focusing on the sacrifices that they made, engaging with the fact that women were a really important part of the Ahle Bayt, and, and it, these stories actually are telling the stories that the women told because it was the women who, who survived. But, but hagiography also has a, another really important function and that's that it serves as a, a bridge in a sense between sort of prescript, prescriptive traditions of law and theology that tell you how to behave and then sort of more popular or what, I don't like the kind of high popular, uh, binary here but but there are sort of there's at the everyday dimension and people don't read books of theology and law on an everyday practice and and so these types of stories about about exceptional people teach those rules those prescriptive norms uh and and they also come together to tell the lives of these individuals and also the values that they're imparting through uh, through clo- uh, culturally meaningful uh, idioms. So these these figures are not the same 
all over the Shi'i world. For example, Abbas, the half-brother of Imam Hussein, who was martyred, getting water for uh, the children in the entourage at Karbala. Uh, he was filling water skins. And in Iraq, for example, he is sort of this hyper-masculine uber-man. And then in, in the Deccan, for example, where the region where, where Hyderabad is located, he's... He's a much softer and gentler figure. Uh, he's uncle. There are so many poems uh, you know, that extol the relationship between Imam Hussein's youngest daughter, Sakina, and Abbas. And, and these poems are really heartrending. Uh, you know, she's saying, uncle, you'll never get up from the sand again. You'll never do this again. You'll never do that again. And, and he's not this super tough guy. And, and and so I think that culture is in sort of the local context, which is why we can't say one version of this hagiographical tradition is the same all over the world. These, these figures are sort of stock figures, but they become real once they're, they're put into these, these local contexts and, and they become perhaps in some ways, aside from those standard things. So, Abbas was the water bearer. But aside from that, that Iraqi Abbas and the Deccani Abbas are, they may in some ways be mutually unintelligible between for, for Shi'i devotees in those two places because he, he really becomes a very different person. And, and so for this reason, we, we have to pay attention to what hagiography does. Because it's not the same in all places. It's taking the standard elements from a script and and making it making it meaningful in a particular place. The the other half of this that it becomes essential to your study is this idea of ethnography. And I, I'm wondering if you could give us your thoughts just on uh, just in general the importance of ethnography for Islamic studies and and maybe even though there is more and more scholars doing ethnography in Islamic studies. Why is there still a hesitation to do fieldwork? Well, one of the problems with doing fieldwork, in the sense, will sound really perhaps jaded, but it makes doing research a lot more complicated because you're working with living people. And it's you can't just go into an archive for two or three weeks and then you're done with the archival work. You can then go home, you can work on it and that's it. It's, you know, with, with ethnography, it's, it's a really important part of this is building relationships. It takes time. It, it requires sort of ongoing and sustained relationships. And you're also, you know, in some ways at, at the whim of, of your community. Will you be accepted? Um, what kind of information will you be authorized by the community to obtain? These are all uh, really important challenges. The first time I went to Hyderabad uh, to kind of get to know leaders in the Shi'i community, I was still a grad student. It was before I hadn't taken my exams yet. And so I was not taken terribly seriously. It's just like, oh, it's another grad student here doing field work. And when I went returned in at the, in January of 2005, after I'd spent 
uh, four and a half months in Iran and had gone to Damascus and done pilgrimage at uh, the shrine of Sayyidah Zainab, then then I was taken a lot more seriously. I'd established my credentials and and I was given more access in the community, but there were still a number of ritual practices that I only found out about well after the fact because you know there was a certain, I think, degree of censor you know sort of censoring from within the community well you don't need to know about these these practices or these are you know we ourselves see these as superstitious or may think that somebody from outside will see these practices as superstitious or this or that whatever whatever the reason may be but i think one of the problems or one of the challenges in in Islamic studies is that we have tended to privilege sort of high, the high traditions of philosophy and law and theology. And we've, and with that, we've tended to privilege textual, so textual traditions instead of engaging with those textual traditions and then seeing how Muslims themselves are engaging with this. I think the moment we bring in the human dimension, it gets really messy because there is no one answer. And we get conflicting. One person will say this, another person will say this. What do you do with that? How do we deal with these these conflicts within within communities, these divergences of opinion or interpretation? But one of the biggest challenges that we have in North America in particular and I think considering recent events is that we have to understand Muslims, not just Islam, but we have to understand Muslims and Muslim practices, Muslim beliefs, the contours of everyday life. We can't also, you know, this, I think we have to also be aware of the danger of reducing Muslims to their religious identity. That's only part, a very small part. And this is one thing I really try to to bring out in the book that, for example, the Shi'i community I work with in Hyderabad, they're not just Shia, but they're Hyderabadi, they're professionals, they're this, they're that, they're, you know, they, they have family relationships and, and all of the complications of family relationships. And we really have to look at the ways in which as human beings, we're multiply situated and there are lots of elements that make us who we are. And, and that takes, I think it takes a lot of time to, to be able to do that. Well, I hope you have a couple more of these uh, thematic approaches uh, from your research because I, I think that's one of the parts that makes your book so successful is, is this re- relational activity between practice and text and you, you do a very good job of kind of parsing those out so so thank you um, one idea that I want you to uh, explain because you, you you explored at great length is this this difference between um, what you call Husseini ethics and imitable sainthood can you explain what those two are and the relationship between them sure sure and maybe I, I can also introduce the other sort of binary or the other half of that binary 
so so I see these as paired, as complements to each other. Uh, this notion of imitable sainthood and Hosseini ethics, which really draws from from a term that that we find used fairly often in Urdu Hosseiniyat to refer to this whole sort of spirit and ethic of sacrifice and commitment to social justice and family and faith that that permeates these narratives that are told in poetry that are are narrated in uh, in the the majlis in the morning assemblies and these this the Husseini ethic is emphasized in different ways with different figures from the Ahlebeit. Certain figures emphasize uh, bravery. For example, Zainab, uh, Imam Hussein's sister, who survived the Battle of Karbala and stood up to Yazid in uh, his Darbar in Damascus. She's often characterized as being really brave and of the people. And she's the one who, and in, in, so in, I think in chapter three of my book, I, I translate a narrative from Mir Alam, who was the prime, prime minister during, uh, for one of the uh, Asif Jai kings in Hyderabad. And he, he wrote uh, in Dekni Urdu translation of Kashafi's Rosa Toshahadad. This narrative is completely different from the Persian narrative because it's all about the women. In fact, the battle is is minimized. It's it's not very it's not very important. And it, every time something happens, Zainab steps in and takes she takes control. And and so everybody has a certain set of qualities that they exemplify and embody with regard to this Hosseini ethic, this spirit of sacrifice and faith and and integrity and. I see this Husseini ethic as imitable. It's something that one can, if you practice, if you have faith, if you want to take on and, and embody these, these positive qualities, then their sainthood is imitable. These aren't these sort of otherworldly figures. They're really earthy. Their wives and husbands and fathers and sons and sisters and brothers. That 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 the dimension of kin relationship is also very very important, which is why the feminine di- dimension, the, the centrality of women, is so absolutely important in Shi'i devotionalism. It's because we have this imitability. It's not just about men, but women are also really central to this and when you have this then it means that both women and men can participate in some ways on their own terms and through their own gendered experiences in trying to be like these exemplary figures uh and this pairing of Hosseini ethics and and imitable sainthood i see as in a sense the the flip or or the sort of other complement to what the qualities that the imams possess. And, and I also in pair together imamat and walaya, or this tr- what I call transcendent sainthood in, in the book, that these are figures who are much more otherworldly. You know, they are transcendent in a way because they possess 
this initiatic knowledge of the Quran, their their authority is passed down through divine designation, through nas, uh, from one imam to the next. And and these are these are qualities that we don't have as regular people and we can't possess. And and so these figures are while people do want to take on certain qualities that the imams have because of, of these, you know, this really sort of initiate this the, the role of initiatic or special knowledge and divine designation makes it more difficult to really be like them. And and I see that get played out narratively in devotional poetry or in these these Deccani Urdu translations of of Rosato Shahada that Imam Hussein, for example, he, his his role is set. He's going to die. He'll be martyred at the Battle of Karbala. And so he, whenever there's an emotional scene, there's some sort of emotional climax or some sort of personal interaction between two two of the figures that they he comes in and then he leaves because there's no, there's no space for engagement in a way uh, in you know for him because he's leaving and this isn't something that an epic hero does for example and I, and I make comparisons to King Rama of the Ramayana also as an epic hero that in that role there's very little space for development of character there's very little space for ambiguity uh, for for these epic heroes, whereas for the women, because they survived and their future is, is much more open, they do have room for, for development, for emotionally engaging. And it's in the literature that we really see the use of female voices and emotions to carry and to produce the sort of desired aesthetic effects of grief and sorrow and wanting to be, you know, to, you know, wanting to have been at the Battle of Karbala to also share in that ethic of sacrifice. Um, just, just so I'm sure that we, we make it there, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, there, there's, you do a great job. You're, you're really theoretically very rich in the book. And uh, I appreciate both, uh, your comparative analysis where you, you liken these models to other traditions. Um, but also within the Islamic tradition, you look at these kind of in multiple, uh, from multiple angles. Um, could you though jump ahead to talk about, um, this medjlis, uh, ceremony, this, this commemoration and, and how the figures of Qasim and, and Fatima Kubra play out in this. So what, what does this scene look like? Okay. Uh, and then what do these things represent? Okay. So I'll describe what is probably the biggest Mendiki Majlis that takes place in Hyderabad. Uh, it takes place at the home of Dr. M.M. Taki Khan, who was a chemistry professor. He worked for government of India for a long time. He comes from from several generations of Shi'i she notables in in Hyderabad and and so they've been hosting the Mendi Kimajlis in Hyderabad for for a long time it's been almost it's been almost 100 years now at this point and for the men's at 
so one one thing to to explain the the majlis is usually sex segregated although there there are exceptions to this but but they are rare usually there will be a men's majlis and a women's majlis although women are always present at the men's majlis they'll sit either behind some sort of curtain or be in a separate room especially if it's a majlis that takes place in a house for example uh they may be in a separate room but still able to listen and and participate I've attended both the men's and women's majlis at uh, at the Khan family residence, which is located in uh, in Hyderabad's old city in a neighborhood called Yakutpura, and they have a very large ashrakana, a ritual space where alums, uh, an iconic. Uh, Hands. I mean, they usually are sort of. They look like the hand of Fatima, something similar to that, and and they represent different uh, different figures of the Ethiopian. And the Khan family has been devotees, so to speak, of Qasim uh, for a very long time, and so they have they have an old alum dedicated to Qasim, and and then the Sashirkana. So that's under sort of on a long porch, and then there's a big courtyard and the house. And the women tend, uh, stay in the living room, uh, the women of the family. And then there's also space uh, for sort of more everyday women uh, from the, the locality to come and, and participate in the majlis. And generally, the way the majlis takes place, uh, there will be, to, it starts off with recitation of poetry. Uh, and these are usually salams, so sort of poems of invocation that set the mood. Then there may be recitation of portions of Marcias, these longer, more epic uh, quality, these, these longer poems with an epic quality. The whole thing isn't recited, but portions, certain verses may be recited at the discretion of the Marcia Khan, the person uh, who is, is uh, reciting the poetry. And so people listen to this. Some people may gently beat their breasts, uh, but but or weep. Then the uh, the zakir, the rememberer, uh, will sit uh, either on a member or on a chair that's elevated in in sort of the center of the crowd or in the center of of, of the space, and everybody gathers around and listens to. Uh, a recitation from the Quran, something that sets the, the theme. So each uh, each majlis has a particular theme, and so it may be bravery, it may be courage, uh, sacrifice. There will be different themes for for each majlis, and and the zakir chooses. Uh, we'll think about who's going to be the audience at this majlis. What's going to how will what theme will make them connect? And then really start thinking about, for example, the wedding of Fatima Kubra and uh, and Qasim. And and so one year, uh, one of the the majlis uh, uh, in this one particular majlis, the the theme and the narrative really focused on, you know, what happens when a man and a woman get married, and and the social critique. That takes place when when a young woman marries a man. People will say, "Oh gosh, you know, don't let her get 
don't let her become a widow because basically her her social life is over and and so the narrative reflected you know this is a really important event and look at how we you know in our own practices say you know oh things will be really bad for this woman if her husband dies and and so it, it's is supposed to that that the Zakir's commentary is supposed to get people thinking, oh, is this good? Are are some of these things that we do are they helpful? Are we reflecting the positive quali- qualities of Fatima Kubra and and Qasim when we're already concerned about the husband possibly dying and making his wife a widow before the wedding's even happened? Here's this joyful event. We're not worrying about justice or what's in the best interest of the bride or groom or, or whatever. And, and, and so it sets this really important tone that then as the emotional shift takes place, the narrative turns into Messiah, the narration of the sufferings of, of the particular, you know, hero that's being focused. And, and so in this case of Fatima Kubra and Qasim and their wedding and at the emotional peak of this, the alum gets covered up. So before the majlis even starts, the the metal part of the the alum is covered. It's wrapped and wrapped and wrapped and wrapped because it goes out in a procession and it goes out upright. So uh, some of the son-in-laws of, of Dr. Khan will take the, the alum out through the crowd and people are scrambling to touch it and pick into receive the barakah, the, the blessing and grace that emanates from the alam, and it, it will go out and do do a, a circuit through the, the crowd, and then it will come into the women's space, and then on its way back, and that symbolizes uh, Qasim is going on his wedding procession, uh, so on Barat, where he goes to the, the house of his bride and takes her back. This is a very South Asian uh, ritual. And then when he returns, so when the alum or Qasim returns back to uh, back to the the porch where the alum is kept, uh, a bloody cloth is put on over the alum, and it's brought back. Instead of standing upright, it's carried horizontally. So to represent a funeral buyer. And the other thing that happens at this point, so it it becomes really chaotic. I mean, there's so many things that are happening at once. So that's one thing that's happening. Then also prior to the majlis, uh, Dr. Khan and his daughters prepare trays of henna that also go out in procession and people make mad dashes to try and grab a bit of this henna paste off the plate, which then they will dab onto the right palm of their hand. And the hope is, the the expectation is that through the intercession of Qasim, that man or that woman who's put the henna paste on their right palm will get married in the next year. And I've heard many, many stories from Shias that, in fact, shortly after that Muharram cycle, the days of mourning, a marriage, you know, they got married. And it was because of, of the grace of Qasim's intercession. So that's also happening. And people are scrambling to get the henna paste. And then also groups, men break off into groups. They're, they're members of uh, 
so Matami Guruhan or these associations of um, people who self-flagellate so uh, will strike themselves and and this is just striking with the hand and and so one person a, who's called a noha Khan, a person who recites nohas or short rhythmic rhyming poetry uh, that you know is supposed to cite feelings of profound grief uh, that then people will beat them beat their chests in time to the rhythm of the poem so people are also gathered in groups so you have maybe 10 different groups of noha reciters and people performing matham also so this is also happening all at the same time and this goes on for maybe about 15 minutes and and so this people just you know ascend 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 the emotional peak is you know it's building and building and building and then finally it comes down and it ends and people kind of enter back into into their own bodies in a way uh the sacrifice has been made the the ex- encounter with the baraka of of Qasim has has taken place and and then so then there are some final prayers and People will have tabaruk. They'll have uh, blessed food, and and so it ends also with this this really important act of hospitality, where people are given are given, you know, and each majlis is famous for for different different foods, and and that's a that's a in itself a whole different story. <laughs> I think so. This issue of hospitality is is really significant, uh, but but you can see just in in this hour and a half or so, uh, men's the men's majlis tends to be about an hour and a half. Uh, there's a lot that happens, and and you know it takes a while to learn how to read read the events, and and you know especially the symbolism. These these events are, are so deeply laden. With symbolism, it's not just about the zakir telling you what you should believe or what you should feel, but there are all of these other sensory experiences that that are are so central to this. Yeah, this is fascinating, and you, you paint a very good picture in the book. Um, so, uh, the one of the parts I like a lot about the book is you you give these kind of day-to-day uh, conversations that you have that, that reflect how people understand these events. Could, could you talk about what, what do then people do with this in their, in their daily life? Mm-hmm. Well, for example, okay. I, there are a number of people who kind of show up repeatedly in the book. Uh, Dr. Khan and his daughter, Kulsum, are two figures who show up a fair amount. And then a woman named Sabiha, who is the daughter of... Uh, one of the senior most uh, religious scholars, Shi'i religious scholars in Hyderabad, a man named uh, Syed Reza Aga, uh, Sabiha, I interviewed her a number of times. And my first conversations with her were, were really surprising in, in some ways because I was really interested as I started this project in the gendered dimensions of this particular narrative and I was going in my own perceptions and expectations about how do how do women deal with widowhood how do they how do they feel about this how do they feel about this 
you know, marriage being compulsory because it, it really is compulsory. It's compulsory in South Asia. Uh, people tend not to remain single, uh, and having a family is is you know really provides um, a central aspect of being for you know in the world uh, for for people whether you're Hindu or Muslim or Christian. Or, or whatever. And, and so some of my own values and assumptions were really challenged. And, and one of my first interactions with Sabiha, we were talking about, you know, she's telling me about how you know, she's really well educated. She's running the school. She's, she's a professional woman. And, but then she said, well, you know, I do think it's better for a woman, uh, for a hus- uh, for a woman to die before her husband. And, and I thought, well, that's really strange. And it seems, I don't, I didn't really know what to do with it. And it was only after I had ongoing interactions with her that, that I was able to really understand the the ways in which these ethic, this ethic of, of sacrifice and of trying to be the best spouse, the best daughter, the best wife, the best Shia, the best Hyderabadi, sort of the best person in totality that, that you can be, that this isn't, you know, some kind of rejection of the world. It's not a devaluation of the self or of being a woman, but, you know, it, it <laughs> It was just, it was, I mean, it's difficult to explain. It was an internalization of these, these models and, and these, this way of being in the world that you can't escape. If you go to a wedding, this story, you, you have to recite these mourning poems before you can, before you can get on to the joyful experience. And and so if you're constantly reminded of the value of sacrifice, then it's 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 impossible to let it go and it's impossible not to to want to take on that model. And and another figure that I had some interactions with was a woman named Sarah. And Sarah um, wanted to get married desperately. And and she really felt at a loss because she couldn't get married. She, you know, she wasn't able for a number of reasons to find a viable candidate to be her husband. And, and she really felt as though she was missing out on having a full role in society and listening to these narratives. Well, you know, she believed deeply that Qasim or Fatima Zahra or, or other members of the Ahle Bayt would intercede it wasn't happening. And, and that I think also probably, even though she never talked about it, that must have been challenging in some ways as well. But she maintained this very deep faith that she would be able to become sort of a full individual if she just kept believing and kept going to the majlis and kept hearing these stories and kept trying to embody their exemplary qualities. And, and, and I had a lot of ongoing 
conversations with with a select number of people. I also am very interested in just like choosing one event to focus on. I had a, you know, a pretty small group of people that I ended up sort of returning to and engaging with over an extended period of time. And that provided really, I think, a deeper understanding. So look, interviewing both women and men of different ages, uh, you know, I was kind of able to see how life has turned out living, you know, with this deep, these very deep and rich uh traditions of belief and and then younger and then also by work you know engaging with younger people looking at the hopes and and the aspirations of trying to cultivate you know this this sort of idealized self and and so that's one you know that's one reason why I chose sort of I guess few people rather than a, a large, large number of, of people to focus on. And there were a number of other people that that I did interview, but but I found these narratives to also be really, really engaging in, in very different ways. Um, I, I agree. Uh, I, I think you add a lot to our understanding by, by introducing these figures as well. Um, to change gears a little bit, I, I want to hear your thoughts about this because um, – you talk a lot about uh, throughout the book ideas about kind of vernacular versus uh, cosmopolitan ideas about Islam and what Shi Islam is. And uh, in the final chapter, you you focus on uh, Keshefi and this this text, the Garden of Martyrs, and how it's been problematic for uh, for lots of people, including Western academics. Can, can you talk about this in relation to this this idea of um, the homogenization of, of Shiism in kind of contemporary mm-hmm. period? Sure. This uh, this connects back to those ongoing experiences that I had in Iran and with with previous research that I'd done as well. Uh, where certain genres of of Shi'i devotional literature were, I think, partly through miscategorizing, uh, so calling a text like the Garden of the Martyrs history. It's not history. It's a hagiography. And, and when certain genres are imposed upon a text, it, it, it opens it up to, to critique that perhaps isn't appropriate. For example, um, Ayatollah Murtaza Motahari saying, this text in particular is terrible, it teaches superstition, it's full of lies and distortions. Uh, and and so these these critiques, I mean, it's also, it's, it's part of a longer tradition, especially coming out of Iran uh, from the 19th century that has... I think endeavored to create, in a sense, a more homogenized Shiism, particular with regard to devotional practices. That there is one one way to perform particular rituals, and you know this goes back to certain types of texts, and you know we really should be able to see throughout the Shi'i world a similarity of a sort of ideal and ritual performance and uh, dissemination of values. But the problem is, as I mentioned with, with hagiography, 
then those those these figures no longer are real, and they are real. So the members of the Ahle Beit, these these heroes and heroines of Karbala, are real people, but they're real because they're culturally relevant. They're vernacularized. They're 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 told, you know they reflect local language they speak in ways that are understandable they dress in ways that are understandable and and you know people can make associations in their minds they're adaptable into people's local both well real and fictive kin networks for example in india people have extensive fictive kin kin networks where people just kind of get absorbed into into your family you know, this person is my real cousin, which actually has a whole other set of meaning. But but in in sort of one's heart and mind, that person has been adapted into into the family, uh, at least for that individual, if not for a larger collectivity within the family unit. Uh, the rituals that are performed, for example, the wedding rituals that I describe in, in detail in the book, uh, the Mendi and Sachuk and Manja, uh, the turmeric grinding ceremony, there are a whole bunch of, of rituals that are performed that are really distinctively South Asian and, and have a South Asian cultural valence, uh, especially with regard to teaching gender roles. And, and so we can't separate out the vernacular, this sort of vernacularization where, where Karbala is in a particular place at a particular time rather than this sort of cosmopolitan Shiism where there is a geographical place known as Karbala and it's for all people. So there's this abstracted Karbala for all people, for all time. But in a sense, I see that as, as somewhat empty and, and my research showed that, you know, there has to be this common referent, but the common referent only becomes meaningful when it's when it's put in that vernacular, that very specific context. And even North India is different from South India as far as ritual performance and, and how these figures, you know, kind of, quote unquote, play out. I think you, you got it right on in the book. Uh, you do you do a great job of, of kind of laying out this this vernacular process and, and, and why it's important in the South Asian context. Um, before I let you go, Karen, though, uh, I appreciate you spending so much time talking to us. And um, I wonder if you could tell us kind of what, what you're working on now or what you, you have planned for the future. Sure. Uh, well, I have two projects that I'm currently working on. One I've been working on for the last few years and it will be a bit more of a long-term project on the prophet's daughter Fatima Zahra and the ways in which her body is engaged in both devotional literature and ritual again so I'm again I'm very interested in this intersection between text and practice uh, various rituals that have developed around Fatima but uh, devotional literature also has been very very rich and and so I've been thinking about how I'm going to conceptualize this project and, and it probably will be sort of a snapshot approach to take either different parts of her body and then you know if it's her heart if it's her mind if it's you know her smile 
even. Uh, and then take a, you know, do very close analysis of, of how, how that's engaged either in a particular text or in a body of texts or in particular ritual practices. And I'm still kind of conceiving of that, but I've, I've published a few articles on Fatima and I'm also working on a project and I, I just finished doing some field work in Hyderabad this summer and I'm going back in December on how the bodies of the imams and the Ahle Bayt have been, in a sense, reconstituted in South Asia, making it, transforming sort of the subcontinent into a sacred Shi'i landscape. And in this project, I'm looking at sort of distinct forms of, of embodiment, including relics, because relics play a very, very important role, especially when they're put into alums. And, and these are not objects that are necessarily kept away for all of the year. In, in Hyderabad, for example, there are certain ashurkanas uh, where alums are displayed year-round and people go every week to make offerings, to, to do manet, so to, to make a vow. And so that's, that's one thing that I'm looking at. Uh, so these, these objects or items associated with, they're not body parts, but, but items associated with, with the imams or the ahle bayt that then are, you know, are integrated into the material religious life of, uh, of Shia's uh, sacred footprints and handprints, which we find throughout South Asia and have, I think, of, you know, reflect a distinctive uh, religious milieu uh, where we also have sacred handprints and, and other sort of imprints uh, of the body in Buddhism and Hinduism as well. And food rituals, uh, there are a whole range. Food has a, a really important role in uh, in Shiism, and there are rituals that are performed uh, either by women only or on a regular basis, and and there's a belief that this food has been touched and therefore sanctified uh, by, by the ethnic bait. So I'm, I'm really interested in the role that food has. And I also want to look more at matham, this, this practice of self-flagellation and, and pro- sort of a process of transference that happens in which through the act of self-flagellation, individuals become like the hero's heroines at Karbala. Uh, and what else? I think that's... <laughs> Sounds like a lot. <laughs> so all of these different ways, but but this, the way in, in which sort of these disaggregated bodies, right, because the, the imams are no longer alive, uh, and the members of the Ahle Bet are no longer alive, so their bodies are disaggregated. They don't, they, they don't exist physically uh, as something that you can you can connect to and so through all of these other forms Shia can engage emotionally and relationally with with these objects or or sort of monumental and, and I think of footprint these sacred footprints and other objects in a sense as, as being monumental 
Well, this that all sounds great, and I, I look forward to to hearing more about that. Um, also, I apologize. There there really is uh, a lot more in the book that uh, you go into great detail, and, and obviously in an hour, it's hard to explore all of that. But uh, thank you again, Karen, for for talking to me. And well, thank uh, you for interviewing me. I, I enjoyed. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Today we were speaking with Karen Ruffel, assistant professor at the University of Toronto, about her wonderful book, Gender, Sainthood, and Everyday Practice in South Asian Shiism, which was published by University of North Carolina Press in 2011.